Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the web-only sports show from RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. This week we celebrate a couple of New Zealand cricketers being named as the best in the world. New Zealand rugby continues to do its best to keep our top players here. The Breakers have gone a long way to finalising their playing roster for the next NBL season. And we hear from a couple of athletes named to compete in this year's Rio Olympics. Special recognition for a couple of New Zealand's top cricketers this week with Black Caps captain Kane Williamson and White Ferns captain Susie Bates being named as the world's best cricketers by Wisden. Williamson and former captain Bryn McCullum were also named among the top five cricketers of 2015. Wisden described Ms Bates as one of the power hitters of the women's game in 2015, not least when she scored 258 during a whitewash of Sri Lanka. Checkpoint's John Campbell spoke with Bates in a hometown of Dunedin and asked her how exciting it was to be the best female cricketer in the world. Yeah, when you, when you put it like that, it, it is pretty exciting. And I guess it's just, um, you know, you look back on the last 12 months and you feel, you feel pretty proud of, of what you've done and it just makes it all worth it, I guess. And to, to get recognised like this, it just uh, drives me even more because I love the game so much. When did you find out? How did you find out? Yeah, well, I actually got rung when I was playing in Perth um, before Christmas by by Wisden to give me the heads up, and then they said it wasn't going to be announced until April, so I've had to keep it pretty quiet. Um, Since then, I obviously told my parents and a few people pretty close, but um, I've had to keep it under wraps, and uh, last night when it came out, just the messages of support was was really nice, and um, I'm on a bit of a break from cricket, but it is nice to, to have an award like this after a pretty successful year with the White Ferns. A fantastic year with the White Ferns. Such a successful year, both personally and as a team. Tell me about your childhood. You told your parents when you found out when you were playing in Perth. Did you play lots of cricket in the backyard as a little girl? Yeah, I sure did. I think uh, most people um, my age that that play um, women's cricket had had brothers or or dads and mums that got them out in the backyard. And my two brothers, Tom and Henry, played cricket um, right through the age groups. And I just wanted to get out and and join in with them. And I remember vividly some of those... um, after after school nights where where Tom batted for hours and I was just made to bowl and bowl and sometimes <laughs> didn't get a bat so there there he'd <laughs> um, he'd also make me bowl even closer because it wasn't fast enough but um, they they still love following it and they've stopped playing now but that's where I guess I fell in love with the game and just joined a, a boys club team after that. And the wonderful thing about brothers is that they're so unsentimental, right? I mean, in, in some respects, you know, that if you can survive playing against your brothers, you can kind of survive anything, can't you? Yeah, exactly. I, I remember when their friends came round, I... 
um, perhaps wasn't good enough to, to play. Uh, they, they sort of said, oh, no, you don't play. They were embarrassed to play with a younger sister. But eventually they let me join in because they realised I wasn't, wasn't too bad. And ever since then, I guess they've kept me pretty grounded and um, remind me when I don't score runs. But also on the flip side, they have been really supportive and, and proud of what I've been able to, to do in the New Zealand side. I think the other thing you've been able to do and the team has been able to do is take women's cricket from out of the shadows. I mean, suddenly people are talking about the team, suddenly you're live on the telly, suddenly people are watching you, suddenly people are engaging with you. That's happened really recently and that must be something you're very proud of. Yeah, and I think um, today with, with the award and I guess the messages I've received in, in the media, that's probably been... The, the, the thing I'm most proud of is um, people are starting to talk about us and the way the girls have gone about their cricket in the, in the last two years. Um, it's just I've always known that, that um, people would have loved the game if they'd seen it and those ones that have been close to it and, and been supportive of it have seen how, how much work the girls put in and it's just nice that the public now, I guess, have access to that and, and can start following the team and start um, young girls can have their favourite female players. I, I know growing up... Um, my favourite players were the likes of Nathan Astle and so hopefully girls are talking about Sophie Devine and, and Rachel Priest and, and Sarah McGlashan as their idols and um, that's probably what's most special about being a female cricketer at the moment is you can really sense um, that the public are, are getting behind us and, and young girls now can aspire to be female role models. And Susie Bates, you didn't mention your own name. There are lots of little kids starting out in the backyard, <laughs> seriously, with their brothers and sisters wanting to be you when they grow up. And that's a magic thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, when I, when I was young, I, I have pictures of, of when I first started playing cricket and you just went out there and, and enjoyed it. And um, it is pretty special that girls now might be wearing the pink white ferns top with um, Bates <laughs> on the back of it. And um, if I see that around, it will, it will feel pretty special. But as long as they're, they're playing cricket, it um, doesn't really matter who they look up to. White ferns captain Susie Bates talking to John Campbell. And this is Extra Time. While a number of high-profile rugby players continue to sign with clubs overseas, New Zealand rugby has done a pretty good job in keeping a good core of internationals here to play for the All Blacks. This week, the exciting Crusaders winger Johnny McNichol announced that he's heading to Wales later this year. Following last year's World Cup, a number of All Black legends moved on. But as you'd expect, Steve Hansen will still have an experienced and potentially exciting side to take the field against Wales in June. I spoke with NZR boss Steve Chu about keeping players in New Zealand. We're pleased with our, our retention rates. I mean, I think uh, leading into last year's World Cup, we obviously had a lot of senior players commit for that four years, and and you know they they did the job wonderfully well for us, didn't they, over that period? Um, there's an, there's a new crop of senior players, if you like, because we've obviously had a big number um, of of very experienced players leave at once. Uh, I think most of the conversations we're having are really positive. They're, certainly the Lions has a big appeal and that's been helpful from a retention point of view. But we've got a lot of players now starting to focus on 2019 and saying, OK, well, I'd, you know, I'd like to be a very senior player at a World Cup and have another crack at it. And so that's good. Um, but the pressure remains. You know, The, the, the economics uh, coming out of particularly the French competition where you have no real logic to the value people are putting on players or coaches for that matter, uh, in, in fact, any position, any technical position, our people are the most sought after in the world. That's just our reality. We live in an open and international economy and we can't compete on dollar, so we continue to focus on 
good competitions, good coaching, great environments. You want to wear the jersey, you've got to be here. Those are our kind of tools, if you like, and we put those alongside a competitive pot of money, but it doesn't match what people can earn overseas. So ultimately, if it's about money, we lose some. Uh, Sonny Bill Williams has been mentioned in the last week or two about supposedly what he might be offered or to stay in the game. Can you enlighten us? Are you talking with him, are you? Yeah, I think uh, you know our, our contracts um, manager was in the media last week saying it's a it's a discussion that we're having with um, with Sonny Bill Williams people, Kenya Coda, who you know. Um, it's a very upfront conversation. Uh, he's as far as we are concerned, he's not made a decision. Staying and playing in rugby is a legitimate option, but he has others. He's he's got to take into account. Um, we've explained what we can do, put our best foot forward. Um, if if, he, if Sonny Bill stays uh, in rugby, uh, we think it'll be incredibly helpful for us. But if he chooses to do something else, then we'll respect that decision. But at the moment, no decisions have been made and, and we're having good, open dialogue, as we always have with, with, his, with his folks. And Steve Hansen, he's through into the Lions. You know, there's talked about possibility of him extending that, but where's he at? Yeah, well, again, Steve's, I think, been pretty open in the media. He's, he's contracted until the end of 2017, so not just the Lions. So he'll see the whole 17 season through. Um, in the All Black management team, we've got some who are contracted for that length of time. We've got others that have gone right through to the World Cup. Um, Steve, at the time we did that contract, was only prepared to commit to that moment. Um, but he is now saying that he's interested in a conversation about a further two years, and certainly so are we, so those discussions are ongoing. And the uh, broadcast deal has been talked about and is bandied about that there's all sorts of money around now and that players might receive more, but I'm assuming uh, it's just a, a part of what uh, you're trying to achieve as part of your strategy and that sort of thing, of where this money is, is going to go, but is there an opportunity that there's going to be more money, perhaps it'll be attractive to stay here? Uh, well, I mean, we've got a, we're in the middle of negotiating our collective agreement as we speak, so you know, there's a possibility that the world will change, but largely our, our, the structure of our, of our um, player contracting hasn't changed for a period of time, so we have a pool of money which we say the players help us generate. It's called uh, player generator revenue. They get a percentage of that revenue, or when I say they, we put a percentage of that revenue into what we call the player payment pool, and from that pool we pay our professional players, men, women, sevens, fifteens. And so if we earn more money, as we have done with this new broadcasting contract, then by definition the percentage means that you know, if they get the same percentage, it's a greater sum of money. So indirectly there's more money to pay players. Does every player see a pay rise you know, parallel to that increase? No, because these are all negotiations and the pool uh, sits there for a three-year period. But certainly we have more money now to pay our players and we've been using that money in our retention uh, programme over the last uh, 18 months. That's New Zealand Rugby Chief Executive Steve Chu. The Crusaders midfielder Ryan Crotty will join an elite group of players when he runs out for the 100th time in Super Rugby in their clash against the Jaguars. Crotty becomes New Zealand's 42nd Super Rugby Centurion and will become the 14th Crusader to reach the milestone, including his current teammates Karen Reid, White Crockett, Owen Franks and Andy Ellis. Crotty has played 15 tests for the All Blacks. 27-year-old Crotty debuted in 2009 and says playing 100 games isn't something he's thought about. I guess when you're going out for your first game, you're not sure whether you'll you know, play 10 or, or 100, so... Um, yeah, it was a kind of goal I set a couple of years ago to, to try and reach this milestone and um, I'm pretty proud and pretty fortunate it's come along. Favourite moment, sort of looking back over the years, you know, I, I guess you haven't managed to get that elusive title just yet, but, but sort of looking back? 
Well, we've had some, some, some pretty special years with this team and made some, some pretty good mates along the way. Um, I still remember my 50th game. It was, it was only a few years ago, actually, but we played uh, the Stormers over in Cape Town, and I mean, that was a pretty big milestone for me then, and uh, we got a, got a tough fought win there, and it was, that was pretty special. So um, hopefully Friday night might, might be a new one that's, that's right up there. What's kept you here? You know, you'd, perhaps you were getting traction a few times, you copped injuries, then Sonny arrived, and that, that perhaps put you on the back burner a wee bit. So, so what's you know, kept you here for, for so long? Oh, Crusaders has always been a pretty special team to me. I grew up watching you know, some pretty successful Crusader sides and um, it was always a dream to, to play and, and represent the province and you know, my family and my friends and, and play for the Crusaders. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's been, you might call them setbacks, but you know, I've, I've always worked hard and, and loved this team and, and wanted to play well for them. So uh, to play 100 and, and join some pretty uh, impressive names that have, have already done so is, is something I'll be really proud of. Just since 2009, Ryan, you know, you, you've built up a century, it seems to gone very quick, but there's one thing you pride yourself on, just the mental toughness of getting out and grinding, perhaps working, punching through injuries or nickels and that sort of thing and being able to play? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's probably something that, you know, early on in my career I might not have really known, you know, not, not knowing what to do when you, when you pick up nickels, but I think as you go you, you learn from some of the older guys and you, you learn, you know, what, what, what your body can, can push through if the, if the mind will will go there, so to speak. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I've, I've prided myself on the last few years and just been able to go out and, and really, I guess, not want to give the jersey up. Mm. And um, really, it's a real privilege each time you get to wear it. So something I try and pride myself on. Ryan Crotty. And this is Extra Time. Kirk Penny's return to the New Zealand Breakers could spell the end of Cedric Jackson's time at the club. Penny's returning home to the Australian Basketball League franchise he played for between 2007 and 2011 on a three-year contract. Jackson, on the other hand, is off contract with the Breakers and the star point guard has been linked with several clubs across the Tasman for the next NBL season. Penny had stints with the Miami Heat and Los Angeles Clippers in the NBA as well as various European leagues. Matt Chatterton reports. Kirk Penny had a standout 2015-16 season with the Hawks he posed a threat to many teams, including the Breakers. His form from the three-point line attracted attention from multiple NBL clubs for the upcoming season, but instead he decided to return to this side of the Tasman. It's a three-year deal, meaning he'll be pushing 40 by the time his contract is up. A lot of players who, if they're given this opportunity, would take it, you know. Especially as your priorities shift and family and relationships become so important, it's, a, it's an obvious move. Penny says he's content with the prospect of retiring in New Zealand and hopes it could lead on to a career in coaching. With two former teammates and good friends in charge of the Breakers, there's a strong chance that could happen. Dylan Boucher, the general manager of the Breakers, says his friendship with Penny played a part in his return. We've got a very strong friendship. You know, Kirk's been a teammate of ours for a long time. Um, you know, played with him, against him for a long time. So, yeah, they certainly come into it. Um, and we certainly pulled on his heartstrings a little bit as well. Boucher says when he and head coach Paul Hinare sat down after the recent season to discuss who they wanted in their team, Penny's name was at the top of the list. With Tom Abercrombie, Corey Webster and Mika Vakona already signed on for next season, and the recent re-signing of Alex Pledger as well, the Breakers roster is starting to take shape, much to the delight of Hinare. To have them here you know, under the, the Sky City Breakers banner is, is just a, a huge part of you know, what this club is, is all about. We will uh, continue to, to look at... Um, uh, strengthening the roster with, with more local players, but um, you know, for now, to, to have someone like her come back, obviously it's a great day for, for the club. 
While pleasing for Henare to have five of arguably New Zealand's best basketballers in the Breakers lineup, it doesn't leave much space for their imports. Americans Cedric and Charles Jackson were popular members for the Breakers last season, but with Penny, Abercrombie and Webster filling the guard spots, that could spell the end of Cedric Jackson's time at the club. Jackson has been a key feature in the Breakers' success. The point guard has been with the team for three of their four championship titles. While the Breakers' management want to re-sign him, Boucher admits he's hot property in Australia too and would be a big loss. We're in a club that throws around a lot of money. We stick pretty strongly to what our budgets are, or we stick strictly to our budget, and uh, we don't go over and above that. So if it comes to a bidding war, you know, it's not one we're going to win. With six months left until the start of the next NBL season, there will no doubt be plenty of toing and froing before final team lists are sorted. For Extra Time, Matt Chatterton. With two high-profile international sporting events coming up this year, the Rio Olympics and Euro 2016 football tournament, the spotlight could well fall once again on the question of corruption in sport, which has been a hot topic for a number of years now. Declan Hill is one of the foremost world experts on match-fixing and corruption in sport. Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan asked him how the fixing actually happens. I've got really kind of two, quote, feathers in my cap. One is that I did this infiltration over a number of years into these Asian match-fixing gangs. The other one I got my PhD from the University of Oxford, specifically looking at the statistical patterns of how these things work and the networks of what they do. So let's, let's actually, you know, as quickly as possible, talk about the two types of match-fixing. One has been around for thousands of years, since the ancient Olympics, and that's just bog-standard guys want to win. And so they're going to try anything, they're going to pay off their people, they're going to do whatever they can. And that's what I would say is a kind of low-burn corruption that we've had in sports, you know, really thousands of years. Well, I get back to the thing, and I get back to the, the continuity of the interview that you just finished with these guys who are talking about globalization, is you now have this gasoline of enormous amounts of money being being poured into the sports gambling world, which is now being poured onto this low-burn corruption. So... You know, your your point was very good in terms of low-grade matches are now susceptible corruption that they weren't five, ten years ago. So it's now worth fixing the mixed doubles in the ITAF challenger game in Santiago de Chile or wherever, whereas five, ten years ago it wasn't. And that's because of the globalization of sports gambling. Are the biggest sports still the most lucrative, like an Olympics that's emerging now, like a like a European yeah or a top or a top cricket match? Yes, absolutely. They're still the most lucrative. And and the other thing that I that I found in the interviews with these fixers, and this is again a message that I repeat to to New Zealand sports, is that yes, um, low grade athletes are easier to corrupt, but the high grade athletes are the ones they spend all their time grooming. And focusing their attention on because the high-grade athletes are the people that can actually affect the game, affect the sport in a way. So, yes, it's easy to reach in and get the mixed doubles in some uninteresting tournament in the middle of nowhere, but you really want to get your guys. You really want the top athletes on your stable of fixers. Who do they target and how? They they target high-profile athletes, and they'll start young. Um, African athletes are really easy and they target them constantly because African athletes are exploited. They're ripped off by their officials. They, it's really difficult to overstate the corruption. Uh, same thing in former Soviet countries, uh, the, the depth of corruption. I began my career uh, looking at the links between Russian mafia and the National Hockey League and the, the systemed, systemic links between the mafia and those countries and their athletes are extraordinary. 
What of those athletes, though, we think might be predict, uh, might be protected or difficult to get to? What are the different ways, and it's difficult to talk about this theoretically without, you know, implying things, but but players coming, I don't know, from a, from a, a New Zealand uh, team, for example, or an Australian team or, uh, or, or a UK side, how do they get to players like that? Look, I, I've no problem rolling up my sleeves and being controversial here. And so my, my question to New Zealand sports people in the New Zealand community is very direct and very clear. How do you prevent the next Lou Vincent? How do you do that? And the problem with many people inside sports communities is that they regard their athletes as essentially bags of flesh and bone to be driven over a line carrying a ball or to be running faster than the next person, to be jumping higher, to be stronger. And my message is saying, look, the Lou Vincent's guys, they're the guys and women who have problems with addiction with alcoholism or with gambling or they get into a, a, a place of personal enemy, you know, they go through a divorce or something like that. So I'm saying, look, set up a mental health, treat the mental health of your athletes as carefully and considerately as you do their physical health. If they pulled a ligament or they pulled an ankle injury or something like that, you'd have all kinds of treatments for them. Well, where is your addiction treatment? Where is yours going out to your athletes and saying, look, Gambling is really systemically dangerous for an athlete. You shouldn't be anywhere near a poker table or a pokey thing or anything like that. Where is their counseling for alcohol addiction? Because that's the big gateway for a place Do like New Zealand. Do these gangs target certain characters and personalities they think will be vulnerable in science? I, I, look, absolutely. Absolutely they do. And these are the weaknesses. How do, how, again, how do, they get, how do they get to them? Look, they'll get to them in all kinds of ways. They're honey traps. Uh, you know, one of the fixes I talked to spoke about uh, using uh, high-priced prostitutes to, to bring these guys in. Um, but, again, um, uh, let me give you an example. Tony Adams, the former captain of uh, England and Arsenal during the 1990s, was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic. Uh, he killed somebody in a drunk driving accident, went to prison, came out. And, and, and really uh, wrote a, a very painfully honest uh, autobiography about this and said, nobody, I was, I, nobody was able to help me. I couldn't go to my coach. I couldn't go to the owner of my team because he'd just be saying, okay, look, I've got to think of the team, not you, Tony. So he set up a very specific psychiatric care for high-profile athletes. And if I could leave New Zealand with one, quote, lesson, it would be that. You know, really look after your high-profile people and put in mental health for them. Declan Hill talking to Catherine Ryan. This is Extra Time. The New Zealand women's football team has been handed a tough draw for this year's Olympics after being grouped with France, Colombia and four-time champions the United States in pool play. The draw was announced this week with Fiji, the Oceania's men's representative, after New Zealand were disqualified from the Olympic qualifiers, grouped with defending champions Mexico, Germany and South Korea. Football Ferns midfielder Annalie Longo told sports editor Stephen Hewson it probably couldn't have been tougher. Obviously a bit of a challenge. I mean, when you get USA and France in your, your group, uh, and Colombia is a tough test, um, it's definitely going to be a challenge, but an exciting one. I mean, you always want to go into um, a tournament playing the best teams and compare yourself against the best in the world, and if you're going to win gold, you're going to have to play them anyway. So, yeah, it's exciting, but it will be a challenge. Yeah, what well, United States won and France three. Um like you say, um, doesn't get a lot tougher. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not sure it could be harder. Um, but, uh, yeah, we know um, we've played these teams a number of times, um, especially USA, um, and we know that we're uh, on our day where it kind of uh, can beat any team um, when we're playing well. So 
we will take that into real and we know I've got a few more months uh, to get ready for it. But yeah, it doesn't get tougher than one and three in the world, does it? <laughs> Playing in the United States, the fact that it's in Rio and maybe not in the United States, any benefit there? Uh, oh, I think the United States has such a huge following. It's awesome for women's football. Um, yes, we saw that in Canada. They followed the team around, um, and their support was just huge. So I don't think it will, it will change much um, in the fact of their support. Um, but all we can do is control what we can and, and prepare as best as we can for the event um, and to play those teams. How have you gone against the United States in the, in the past? We've always been pretty competitive, actually. We, um, yeah, we have. I think we've had a couple of draws, um, and then if we don't play well, we know that they can punish us. Um, so I think I remember about six years ago, one of my first tests against America, we lost five 0 and that was kind of the step into the women's game, and it was kind of like, wow, this is a team to beat. Um, but we've hugely improved since then, um, and and now it seems to be exciting and. Um, a challenge, and um, we seem to be very competitive against them. Um, and, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the test in, in a few months' time. Do you know much about France, much experience against them? Uh, we've only played France once recently. Uh, I think we lost 2-0 in France. Um, but they're a quality side, and they've got a, a lot of quality attackers um, up front, a lot of speed, um, and they play some, some nice football. So, um, obviously, they'll be very tough, um, but... Um, we showed that we were competitive against them. I think we had quite a bit of position against when we played them, um, and we're just going to need to finish our chances when we get them. Um, and obviously, we've got those three months now. Um, now that we know who we're playing, um, to pe- prepare and learn as much as we can about them and how we're going to try and nullify them and hurt them. And you've had the opportunity to play in Brazil too, haven't you? Yeah, that was awesome. Last year we went over to Brazil, and obviously we got that victory, which was incredible for the team and, and the confidence of the team. Uh, so we played over there, so that was a good experience um, and to kind of yeah, feel what it was going to be like. Obviously, it's going to be very hot and warm conditions, um, so we'll prepare and as best as we can. We'll, we'll layer up and we'll get in the gym with the heaters on and those things to try and prepare. Did you follow the draw online or did you just wait, wake up? and? No, yeah, I did. I uh, was going to and I had the streams buffering a little bit. Um, and I thought, oh no, I'm not going to do the 1am. I'm just going to wake up to the news. So I woke up and uh, got a got a, wee, got a wee surprise of, of the tough draw we got. Um, but it was bloody exciting. <laughs> Getting out of pool play. I mean, what what is the, the process there? Yeah, so you either finish one or two and you go automatically through to the quarterfinals. Um, otherwise, you have to be the third, um, second place best third team. So, um, two of the third place teams go through. Um, so, you you basically need a win, definitely. So, three points, and then either a draw um, or some close results, um, and you may get through. Um, but you definitely need at least three points to go through. Do you look to target a game maybe against Colombia, or, or is it simply try and try and win each each match? I think definitely we're going to go out and, and look to win each match. I mean, the better you finish, the higher you finish, the easier um, your road may be in the next round. Because uh, if you finish third, obviously you're going to play a first place team of another pool. Uh, so ideally we're going to go out and try and, and, and win um, every single game we play, and we always try and do that. Um, but, yeah, no doubt we'll have extra focus on that Columbia game and getting those three points because um, we know that we should be beating um, a team like them. Um, and France and USA, if we're on our day and we're playing well, um, there's no, no reason why we can't take points off them either. Football Ferns midfielder Anna Lee Longo talking to Stephen Hewson.
And three New Zealand shooters have been named to go to Rio. Ryan Taylor will compete in the 50-metre full-bore rifle shooting competition, Natalie Rooney in the women's trap, and Chloe Tipple in the women's skeet. Taylor was the sole representative in London four years ago. The trip to this year's Olympics will be Taylor's third appearance. He competed at the Athens Games in 2004 when he finished 36th. He then bettered his finish in London, coming in 25th. While it may not sound as impressive as some of our other athletes have achieved at the Olympics, the difference between the top three medals and 30th place in shooting can be a matter of millimetres. But one of the hardest parts of being a competitive shooter is the rigmarole they have to go through just getting their guns into the country, as Matt Chatterton found out when talking to 36-year-old Taylor. Well, every country is different. Some countries are a bit more simpler. It's just a matter of a bit of paperwork, serial numbers and that sort of thing. Um, Rio, I'm not, I'm not sure what it's going to be like, but um, it normally involves a bit of paperwork anyway, which is a bit of a... And you've got to tell them how much ammunition you're taking and how much you're leaving, that sort of thing. It's it's a bit of a nightmare sometimes, but <laughs> but you, you get used to it. you just got to you know, wait at airports the extra bit longer than normal. When you think of shooting, most people you know, imagine you're lying down, you shoot at, at a target, simple as. There's a lot more yeah. to it, isn't it? There's a, I mean, your breathing has to be incredibly, you have to have a really low heart rate, and your athleticism, you do actually have to be quite fit to do it, don't you? Exactly. Um, obviously, the lower the heart rate you can get, the better, because what, you know, what people don't see, as you're saying, <clears throat> your rifle, it might, it might look still, but it's not. It's it's moving and wobbling, and obviously, you know, at that sort of level, it's doing a little bit more than usual. So it's a matter of controlling your your heartbeat and keeping your keeping your breathing well, and, and obviously focusing as much as you can and trying to trying to eliminate what's going on around you, that sort of thing, you know, the occasion. Because a small move of the shoulder can cost big time on a target, like I mean, or even just a jerk of the trigger. How how much yep. mental mental preparation do you have to put into a shoot like this when you are competing on the world's biggest stage? Uh, you have to put quite a lot because obviously our sport's um, like eighty-five percent mental, fifteen percent physical. Um, it's 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 not easy. Uh, you know, you talk to all the psychiatrists in the world, but at the end of the day, it's it's obviously time behind the rifle and just obviously perfecting perfecting what you're good at. And um, obviously mentally, you know, um, fortunately I've been to a few, you know, a couple Olympics and Com Games. You sort of know how to approach it and. Obviously, you're just focusing on the um, matter in hand and then trying to forget uh, the rest of the stuff and try and get in. When you're down there, you're on your own. Get in that zone and, and away you go. Is there is there much of a camaraderie in the sh- worldwide shooting community? Like when you go to these events, I'm sure you've come across many of these shooters in the past. Do you get on with uh, the fellow shooters at the events or is it all business when you get down to it? Um, well, most of them are your friends. That's, that's sort of, you know, your travel... You go to um, international events and you know, half of them you become friends with most of them and that sort of thing and you sort of you know each other and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, it's, there's no you're all friends until you get down on the line, you know. But yeah, everyone's everyone for themselves once you get down there. That's the New Zealand shooter Ryan Taylor talking to Matt Chatterton. And that's extra time for this week. Follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. Bye for now. 